now, more tips with your host, Rebecca Rogers. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Hello, and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today we have with us Dr. Theodore Cadet. Dr. Cadet is a practicing doctor in optometry and is the director of optometry and neurooptometry for the Hope Clinics, which are located in Bellevue, Silverdale, and Tacoma, Washington. Dr. Cadet is a charter fellow of the College of Optometrists in Vision Development, which is the certification body for developmental optometry and neurooptometry. He is a member of the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association and a clinical associate of the Optometric Extension Program Foundation. Dr. Cadet is committed to helping children and adults gain confidence and self-esteem with reading efficiency and has done distinguished work with traumatic brain injury survivors in helping them recover useful vision. Dr. Cadet has been involved in nine publications concerning all aspects of vision therapy and development, including a publication on vision development and optometric vision therapy, which was presented in the International Conference Association for Children and Adults with Learning Disabilities. He serves as a volunteer doctor for the Special Olympics, and in 2002, Dr. Cadet was nominated for the Washington State Jefferson Awards for Community Service. We are very thankful that Dr. Dr. Cadet has come to spend some time with us today to help caregivers understand how to support vision and vision problems for the people they love, specifically those suffering from issues like traumatic head injuries and or learning disabilities. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today, Dr. Cadet. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're a specialist in the profession of optometry. Tell us more about that. Oh, believe me, happy to do it. And maybe to start a little bit, just uh, talking about... uh, optometry. And it's kind of interesting to take a look just how eye care developed and then looking specifically at uh, my specialty. You know, in the early late 1800s, early 1900s, you had two ways of getting eye care. You could go uh, to a spec peddler who went around communities with a wagon full of glasses and you just tried them on and uh, trial and error. And if you found a pair of glasses, you could see through your bottom. Or you could go to what was called an oculist. And an oculist would take, put drops in your eyes that were intended to paralyze the focusing system of the eye, therefore presumably giving you your true eye correction or refraction reading. And then the doctor would prescribe a prescription, which you then took to an Uh, an optician. And an optician then actually fabricated your glasses. The opticians found a lot of people, especially those who were farsighted, couldn't wear their glasses. And over time, they realized they were mostly people who, again, had farsightedness. And then in effect, the prescriptions ended up too strong. So the opticians began just automatically cutting the amount of prescription the uh, oculist prescribed, and then people could wear their glasses and they were very happy. Well, then over time, some of the opticians said to themselves, you know, if we do the same thing that the oculist does, but just don't use the drops, we come up with prescriptions that people can wear. And so uh, they began doing their own exams. 
Well, of course, that didn't make the Oculus very happy. And so eventually the optician split into two groups, one that did their own refractions or eye exams, and the other opticians that stayed with the Oculus-optician relationship, kind of like a physician-pharmacy relationship today. Well, as you can maybe guess, the opticians that were doing their own exams began to be called refracting opticians, and they eventually became optometry. And the Oculus went through eye, ear, nose, and throat and became ophthalmology. And the opticians still do what they do today. So with this information, now we take a look at some of the early optometrists. Um, you know, it was the late 1800s, early 1900s that we as a society decided we should all be educated and we should be able to read. So we built schools and we trained teachers and all of a sudden now everybody had a chance to learn to read instead of just the elite. So parents at the time said, you know, now that my kids are learning to read and they're reading, you know, they're getting eye strain, they're getting headaches, their eyes tear and burn and ache and tear. When they try to read, they're skipping and misreading and rereading words and losing their place all the time. Uh, they're complaining that the print looks fuzzy and blurry and sometimes pulls apart and looks double. And they're going, you know, there must be something wrong with my child's eyes. And so they went to see their local eye doctor. So their local eye doctor would take a standard exam and find out they had 20-20 at far distance and didn't need any optical corrections. So the doctors are telling the parents, hey, Jimmy's fine, his eyes are fine. And then the parents are looking at the doctor going, well, why is the Jimmy getting all these symptoms and having so much discomfort when Jimmy reads? So enough doc early doctors began to say, you know, these parents are onto something. There's got to be more to vision than just 2020 and correcting the eye optics. And that was the beginning of what we now call developmental behavioral or functional optometry. And uh, there were uh, two doctors. Uh, one was named Skeffington and the other Getman that were really very, very instrumental in promoting and developing many of the early concepts that we now just take for granted in functional optometry. And of course, both of them in retrospect were way ahead of their time. And so now this is a specialty within the profession of optometry that specializes in functional vision problems, how the eyes team and coordinate together what we call binocular vision. And then primary care optometry today takes care of eye refraction and many eye health issues. And ophthalmology continues to perform eye surgery, uh, dealing with eye injuries and the medical aspects and surgical aspects of eye care. Why do you think vision therapy is not as well known as a strategy that can help people with reading problems? I think that's a phenomenal question. And really it goes back, and I remember when I was in optometry school, 
uh, binocular function was a very major part of my education. In other words, the ability of the eyes to team and coordinate together. Um, so visual function was very much a part of my education. And although I'm the only one in my classmates that ended up doing vision therapy, at least the education was there. Um, it was in the early 70s that the leaders in optometry, I think, looked at what they thought was happening in terms of single payer health care and the possibility of uh, a Canadian like healthcare system and decided that optometry needed to get far more into the area of eye health and eye diseases and so forth. So in my opinion, very unfortunately, the curriculum changed and became very much a curriculum very similar to ophthalmology. And so the number of courses that the optometry students took in this area became fewer and fewer. So today it's only two or three courses out of a total eight year curriculum. And the optometry student is not gonna leave school today with enough of an understanding of functional vision to be able to open and, and practice functional optometry. So we are growing, the, uh, but it's mostly young students that then realize the value of what we do and take postgraduate courses in order to learn uh, the tenets of functional optometry and be able to offer these services to their patients. But optometry today, and especially in the primary care, is still very, very much into the eye refraction, eye disease mode, and is not looking for these kinds of functional vision problems. And I would say, if you look at my practice, almost every child and adult I see has been to at least one, if not several, primary care, both optometry and eye care doctors in both optometry and ophthalmology, trying to find out why their child or themselves has these problems. This is your host, Rebecca. And now we will take a short break, and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. What if there was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically? Would you pick up the phone and call? Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington, supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com improvement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387 extension 101 that again is 877-957-7387 extension 101 for an initial free phone consultation lifestyle improvement occupational therapy we're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed I would say if you look at my practice, almost every child and adult I see has been to at least one, if not several, primary care, 
both optometry and eye care doctors in both optometry and ophthalmology trying to find out why their child or themselves has these problems. How is neuro-ophthalmology different from neuro-optometry? Well, typically, um, there was a great deal of antagonism between the two, certainly when I graduated from school. And uh, in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, you needed some pretty strong shoulders to uh, handle some of the negative uh, publicity and negative opinions that came from ophthalmology. However, in the early 2000s, the National Institute of Health finally got interested in vision therapy and uh, conducted and paid for a six plus million dollar study on what we call convergence insufficiency, the ability, inability of the eyes to maintain alignment when reading or doing other near point vision tasks. And uh, again, the study was a double blind study. It was done at multiple locations. And like any study funded by the National Institute of Health, it's absolutely beautifully done. And that study showed that the best treatment for convergence insufficiency was vision therapy, what we call office-based with home-based support. And as a result of that study, uh, there's been much less antagonism toward vision therapy, both by ophthalmology and primary care optometry, because nobody argues with a study that's funded by the National Institute of Health. Unfortunately, a lot of times what really happens is when mom takes junior in for an eye check, mom is thinking in terms of 2020 and does the child need uh, eyeglasses, contact lenses, whatever. The most primary care doctors, I should say many primary care doctors, their head trip is again just into are the eyes healthy and providing a proper refraction. So the mom doesn't uh, share any of the information that Jimmy is having academically and the doctor never asks. So they just do a standard eye exam uh, mom is very often told Jimmy's fine, has 20-20 vision, and uh, that's the end of the exam. And so, um, again, it was just missed. Now, many times, too, if mom does share some of the near-point vision problems that Jimmy is having, uh, the primary care ophthalmologist or optometrist may just go, well, I mean, if your child has problems reading, why don't you talk to his teacher? Maybe he needs special ed or reading support or something. Again, they're not accustomed to taking findings that would give them the information on binocular function. They were taught it, but it's long since just willowed out of the brain. They, they just don't even look at this anymore. And so, Again, uh, the parents are misled into thinking that all of the headaches and eye strain symptoms and reading difficulties and double vision or blurred vision, whatever might be going on, really has nothing to do with their eyes or vision, which, in my opinion, is just crazy. But I hear this story over and over again from the journey that my patients have gone through trying to find me. One of the real dilemmas, too, 
in the teachers sharing this kind of information goes clear back to what's called uh, Public Law 94-142, which was passed in the early 70s. And basically what that law stated was that your child is entitled to an appropriate education at public expense. Now, the courts have interpreted that to mean that if, let's say as for an example, you've got a child with a scoliosis problem and they're perfectly cognitively capable, they could be in the regular classroom and do just fine if they had a $25,000 chair. So the parents go to the school board and say, well, uh, under public law 94142, in order for my child to have the most appropriate education, you need to provide a $25,000 chair for my child. And the school says, we don't have $25,000 to provide a chair. So the parents now take the school district to court, what's called due process. And the judge in effect rules that under the law, the school needs to find $25,000 in order to serve that child. So the same thing very often happens with vision therapy where the parent ends up when they find out that this is why their child is having difficulty learning. They use the focus of concern and the whole uh, process of what we call an individualized education plan or IEP to in effect uh, demand the school district pay for the treatment. And of course the school district doesn't have the funds to do so. And they don't have the ability or funds to provide vision therapy at the school itself. So basically the teachers are told that no matter what they observe, never to say anything to the parents about the problem because then they may Uh, put the school district in a position of having to pay for the treatment. So we get very few referrals directly from public schools. I'm even aware of a couple teachers that literally got fired for referring for vision therapy. And so um, the public school teachers are really handicapped in terms of making the parents aware. Now we do get a lot of referrals from private schools and homeschoolers because they do not fall under that law. And the teachers can absolutely make the parents aware that it appears the child does have some, what appear to be vision issues impacting their learning, and they can make a referral to an appropriate uh, developmental optometrist. Fantastic. So I'm glad that you mentioned vision therapy again, because again, taking another setback. So mom takes... Uh, Johnny to the optometrist, which happens to be a behavioral or developmental uh, optometrist. And he has the capacity to not just see how well Johnny can see, but he's able to see how Johnny's using his eyes. What then happens when you as a professional find some specific problems and what are some of the problems you may see and how then do you treat it via vision therapy? Well, again, good question. So when in reality, we really see with our brain, the eyes are simply a tool to get lighted information uh, via electrical impulses to the brain. 
And the eye muscles are simply a vehicle to aim the eye so we can take in the information we want. But the actual interpretation of what we see in the response to that interpretation all takes place in the brain. And so the reality is there are no eyeglasses that are going to solve a binocular vision problem because essentially the problem is not in the eyes. The eyes are fine. It's not in the eye muscles. The child doesn't have a physically challenged eye muscle. The problem is in the brain signaling to the eye muscle. And sometimes that signaling pattern has gotten all out of whack. And as a result, the child is uh, very inefficient at reading and performing visual nearpoint tasks. Um, I tell parents all the time, you know, if you look at our visual system from a physics standpoint, as a mechanical tool, we were designed to hunt buffalo with an occasional glance up close to make sure the fire hadn't gone out <laughs> or your child hadn't run away. We were not designed to spend hours and hours looking up close. And in many, many cases, the system simply is collapsed and it really isn't noticed until the child hits school because if you look, take a look, what do we primarily use our near point vision for? We use it for reading and academic work. So that's where the problem, the visual problems tend to show up, not as vision problems, but as educational symptoms and issues. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver Caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com and discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877 957 7387, extension 101. That again is 877 957 7387, extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101. Because care starts with you.
Thank you for joining us on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Dr. Theodore Cadet. Dr. Cadet is a practicing doctor in optometry and is the director of optometry and neurooptometry for the Hope Clinics, which are located in Bellevue, Silverdale, and Tacoma, Washington. Dr. Cadet is a charter fellow of the College of Optometrists in Vision Development, which is the certification body for developmental optometry and neurooptometry. Please join us next Sunday morning at 7.30 for part two of our interview with Dr. Theodore Cadet.